quick heads up for listeners, this episode deals with addiction and substance abuse. If the topics we discuss bring anything to the surface for you, you can call the Family Drug Support Helpline on 1300 368 186. You can also call New South Wales Quit Line on 13 Quit or 13 7848. I'll also put links to support services on the program's page on fbiradio.com. Record collections and recollections. Out of the box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull with you on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box, the place where every Thursday I'm joined by one person to roll through their record collection and some of the stories that come with it. This interview is being recorded remotely, but my guest and I are both broadcasting on unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by Dr Stephen Jurd. Steve has been instrumental in establishing successful addiction recovery services and 12-step recovery centres in Australia. He developed the Royal North Shore Hospital Drug and Alcohol Service from 1984 to 2006 and founded the Phoenix Unit, a prominent Minnesota model rehab clinic which he went on to direct for 14 years. But those things only scratch the surface and they don't account for all of the songs and stories that make up Steve's very big life. And that's why he's on the show today. We're going to look at all of that stuff over the next hour. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for uh, allowing me to uh, uh, to do this amazing thing and to uh, to consider. Um, I don't know whether it's a big life, but it, it's it's already starting to be a long one. Yeah, I like to think it's pretty big, Steve. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of your life has been built around helping people suffering with addiction. When did it first touch your life? Only recently, in the last couple of years, my mother explained to me how my father's long seven-year period of abstinence ended round about the time of my birth so that my my father had uh, a serious drinking problem and then stopped stone cold uh, for seven years and then uh, he's... Uh, his cousin died in terrible circumstances and he was called in as the only lawyer in the family to try to fix it up. He ended up at the wake. <clears throat> they said, have a drink. He couldn't think of a good enough reason why not. He did. And thereupon came 17 years of bender drinking, the last 17 years of his life, the first 17 years of mine. So I, uh, I, I was brought home uh, from hospital uh, by my mother uh, to a family that was beginning to suffer from uh, from having a, a drinking alcoholic in the family. Did your mum and your dad stay together for those 17 years? They did indeed, yes. Yeah, so uh, um, mum was, um, so I was, I was the fourth child born and there were four more to follow. So, so, so mum had very little mobility. Uh, she had very little opportunity. She was. Uh, was she working? Kept on being. Nah. She just kept on being a uh, uh, a good fifties, forties, fifties, sixties mother. She was bearing kids across 
across 19 years uh, from the late 40s into the mid 60s. And women didn't often have a, a job in those days. And if they were, if there was an infant to be looked after, there wasn't much in the way of childcare. So yeah, no, my, my mother didn't work. And so didn't, didn't have uh, the option of leaving my father really at all. Mm-hmm. Um, for most of that time, not that she wanted to, she, uh, she, she loved him uh, and, and cared for him. And he was sober most of the time. So in terms of my understanding of alcoholism, the fact that he was sober most of the time really clarified it. It really clarified the notion about the first drink doing the damage, uh, like they say in meetings and so on. I, I don't know that saying. What is that? The first drink does the damage. That is, uh, or, or another way of saying it, one's too many and a hundred's not enough uh, because uh, the, the a central... Uh, concept uh, for people who understand addiction that way, as I do, is loss of control. And so if loss of control is the central issue, well, then surely the thing you need to do is stay away altogether. And my father's life is is really a perfect example of that. So while he stayed away from alcohol uh, for those long seven years, he was able to find a wife, uh, have four children, and be a reasonably functional lawyer, uh, but the next 17 years of his life, uh, a succession of problems befell him uh, and uh, and there were many difficulties in our family as a result. And, and, how, and everybody, did... everybody was a bit nervous. Uh, it, it, that's what you're going to ask, wasn't it? How did... I was going to say, how did the family, you know, shape around your father's addiction? The, fa- the family coped in various ways, right? Mm. So my, my, uh, my elder brother, he just got more angry. Um, the uh, uh, the girls, uh, the two girls above me, they uh, each dealt with it in slightly different ways. Uh, I I found refuge. I I found other places to go. I I developed relationships and uh, and spent a lot of time at my playmate's house. Uh, and uh, and and when that uh, he was you know like five houses around the corner or something, and when that relationship. Uh, uh, petered out in uh, our teen years. I found uh, I found another good mate who I'm uh, with whom I'm still good mates, uh, and uh, uh, and so uh, I I spent a lot of time there, not not always invited, but uh, but tolerated and uh, and loved in, mm. in, in the way that uh, uh, the good families do love uh, the friends of their children, and uh, so um, so yeah, so we we each developed. Uh, different ways of uh, of dealing with it. Um, we had the um, uh, we, we supported each other. I, I remember very clearly the the meeting in the uh, uh, in the kitchen with my two sisters. Um, you know, swearing that we'll never ever ever uh, drink alcohol, and uh, that wasn't how it turned out. Uh, but uh, that was our response to it then. So it was a difficult time. It was mm. a difficult time when, um, uh, you know, considering the world uh, through those eyes, being ashamed of your own family. You know, what if you bring somebody home and it's in a horrid mess or uh, your dad turns up drunk or, or whatever? It's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of shame that, uh, that people from uh, uh, alcoholic families carry. Of course. Steve, what's the first song you'd like to play on Out of the Box today? Well, my my sister 
was an extraordinary pianist. She she got her uh, performance letters quite early at age. I think it was only sixteen, and uh, and she often provided uh, an oasis of calm uh, with her beautiful piano playing. And so I'd like to play Moonlight Sonata, which she played beautifully. tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was called Moonlight Sonata and it was chosen by my guest on the show today, addiction psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Jurd. Steve, for the first part of the show, we talked about your early life at home and growing up with your dad who was dealing with addiction and what that meant for you. I want to stay in this period, but talk about your experience of primary school because it seems to represent another steep learning curve for you. Where did you go to school? So I, I had, um, so I, I went to a typical Western suburbs uh, infant school, St. Patrick's Parramatta. And then at the end of that, I was hoping to go to uh, Morris Brothers Parramatta, which was just a block away. And so I put in my application and sat the entrance test. Crucially, there was an entrance test. You had to get you had to get set some academic standards to uh, to get into Morris Brothers Parramatta in 1963, and then I got the acceptance letter. The acceptance letter was truly amazing because uh, I lived in Parramatta, I wanted to go to school in Parramatta, and I was invited by this acceptance letter to go to Morris Brothers Parramatta, but not at Parramatta, at Westmead Boys Home. It was really confusing. You look a little confused. Yeah, I'm confused. That doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. Imagine how much sense it made to to a nine year old. And worse than that, the class was designated four C. And so, and I, I thought I was really smart. And there was no way that I should be in the C class. And so they they graded the A and B class, but they selected the C class out of people that they thought could easily attend. Westmead Boys Home. They the, the school had decided uh, to enlarge, and it was going to build new premises on uh, the spare grounds. And there were lots of spare grounds at Westmead Boys Home, but that wasn't going to be completed for uh, three years. And but they had their whole intake into Grade Four, and so they decided that they'd have another class come into Grade Four, but to be at school with the boys from Westmead Boys Home. So in my class of 48 in grade four, there were 40 little Morris Brothers Parramatta boys in our green and gold. Mm. And there were eight kids from Westmead Boys Home in their red and black uniforms. And they went upstairs at the end of the day to go to bed. And they... <clears throat> And they referred to us as the day boys. It's the sort of thing that you can't even imagine uh, a, uh, a school trying on now. Mm. Uh, but they just did it. And my parents, you know, good Catholics from the Western suburbs in the 60s, they just accepted it. 
That's mm. what the brothers have said is going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And so I was introduced at that age to to children that I understood to be traumatised. I knew Just for a bit of clarification here, Steve, the Westmead Boys Home, it's not a boarding school, it's an orphanage. That's isn't it? correct. Westmead okay. Boys Home was an orphanage. And so yeah, so it was staffed by Maris Brothers. Yeah. And uh, and they they looked after those boys in dormitories. Uh, and uh, and so there was no feminine touch in their lives at all and uh and these were nine-year-olds you know they they who were who were missing their mom and i i guess you don't have to be particularly sensitive uh as another nine-year-old to pick that up but at the time i really noticed and and i felt for them and uh and and tried to make friends with them but uh, but it was difficult for most of them. Most of them were, were going through a traumatic period. You know, their their parents had split up and their mother had to have a job and there was no childcare and so she'd had to let them go or um, <clears throat> or their parents had split up and gone different directions or their parents had both died or whatever had happened and, uh, and they ended up in care, essentially. That's what it was. That's what care was mm. in the 60s. And, uh, and so it was a very strange situation and so it... So it um, helped me to understand. And so uh, because I was a pesky little nine-year-old, mm-hmm. uh, Brother John would sometimes get me out of the, uh, the class and he'd say, go and, uh, go and teach this kid to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and, so, uh, and then I'd go and try to help him with his, with his reading and then realise just how far behind he was yeah. and think, this isn't good. This isn't good. And what's happening... They've got a nine-year-old teaching him to read. That's it's like, and, and so I was doing my best and I understood that that was the best he was going to get. But I also understood that uh, that there was, you know, what's wrong with this picture? I, I, I really understood it to be kids in a, in a terrible circumstance. And uh, yeah. It's striking to me, even hearing you say this as a nine-year-old, that you have that presence of mind and empathy to see the disparity in in the way the two different schools were being treated where do you think that comes from to a certain degree it's innate uh, my mother uh, likes to tell stories she's she's still alive at age 95 she likes to tell stories about me um uh you know pointing to a disabled man a man who'd had a, a leg cut off and say oh mum he must be in trouble. He must have. A, he must have had a very sore leg, sort of thing. So, uh, and this is when I'm a preschooler. So, so I, I, I guess I, I was a kid who wanted to understand. That I was I was a little little brain box who wanted to know everything. Mm. And, and 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 part of what I wanted to know was how people ticked and uh, what was it about people that made them different and how uh, how they came to be like that and so on. And so so yeah. So I. I as a nine-year-old, I noticed. And I guess, yeah, wanting to know what makes people tick and how to help people would go on to become a big theme in your life, Steve. So we'll dive into that in a few minutes' time. But first, you've chosen a song by Fleetwood Mac. Tell me about this one. This is early Fleetwood Mac. This is this is hard-rocking Fleetwood Mac. Uh, that uh, And I did buy this single when I was at uh, Maris Brothers Parramatta, not, not when I was in uh, Year 4, but a few years later. Uh, so it's a single from my high school days called 
Oh, well. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is a Fleetwood Mac deep cut. It's called Oh Well, and it was chosen by my guest on the show today, Dr. Stephen Jurd. Taking it back to 1969, it was Fleetwood Mac on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Oh Well, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Dr. Stephen Jurd. For the first part of the show, we've talked about your early life, Steve, and just now about your innate sense of perhaps wanting to know what makes people tick and wanting to understand the problems that they face, which brings you to university. At 1972, you commenced study in medicine at the University of Sydney. What kind of student were you? Uh, I, I, I think politely I was called a party boy. Um, uh, more accurately, I was also called a wild man. Uh, I was a, um, uh, I had a, a big, long-haired, red uh, mane uh, that uh, that stood out uh, even amongst all the other long hairs in the 70s. Um, so that uh, I cut quite a figure, and uh, and I didn't pay nearly as much attention to my studies as I should have. And uh, I've got many regrets from that time, including that I didn't get nearly enough involved in uh, in cricket. And uh, the, <laughs> the wonderful facilities there at the University of Sydney, I, I only played on them uh, uh, six or ten times, and uh, I, I should have done more of that. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I was, uh, I was, oh, so no, another way of describing was, I was a bit of a mess. <laughs> but I mean, you did turn it around. I have been introducing you as Dr. Stephen Judd throughout the show. So yes, I, I did eventually <laughs> get through med school. Well, you, well, in regulation time in regulation time, but not without having to sit half a dozen resits of exams. When I, when I was actually on the exam committee uh, for year five uh, of med school, I, uh, I had to look at the academic records of uh, students and all these bad students who'd failed their exams, most of them had better academic records than I did. Oh. <laughs> But look, you've turned it around. It's quite interesting. Here you are. I guess so. You're on out of the box, Steve. You've made it big. <laughs> um, but yeah, we kicked off the show by talking about the first time addiction touched your life. It would touch your life again. Are you comfortable telling me about that? Oh, okay. All right. So, all right. So, what happened was I found the white horse. I, I found uh, uh, schooners of Tui's new, and uh, and I drank a hell of a lot. I drank myself into a mess uh, to the point where, yeah, I, I was I was performing poorly academically, and my relationships were affected, and uh, and you might find this hard to believe, but I became less of a nice person, and uh, and so I. Um, yeah, so I, I, I was grumpy and rude and uh, uh, and, and abrupt with uh, uh, 
uh, with a lot of people and 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 generally not nice and uh, and I I began to hate myself for it and uh, and so that created a nasty little spiral where uh, I I didn't feel good much of the time I didn't feel good did that at all point to that conversation you were talking about earlier the conversation that you'd had with your sisters in the kitchen vowing to never drink yes yes at least partly so so having been having been warned about the uh, evils of alcohol in my father mm. to find myself uh, erring even a little bit in that direction mm. was extremely painful and uh, and it made me think uh, that you know it made me reconsider myself and my um, my motivation and uh, my ability to make choices, my free will, uh, mm. and uh, uh, how am I living this life? What am I doing? What's this all about? And uh, and so it made me uh, it, it made me question my reason for existence. I, I got to the point where. Uh, I, you know, despite having the world at my feet, being a, a fourth year medical student, um, uh, having a, a gorgeous young wife and, uh, and a, a baby daughter, I wasn't thinking positively. I was, I was thinking very dark thoughts. Was there a turning point that made you want to move out of that space? There certainly was. I, I, I came across a, um, um, a bunch of people who changed their lives, and uh, uh, and I uh, and I learnt that there was a what, what I call a third way, you know. So that uh, I'd, I'd found um, that, that drinking caused problems, some problems in me, and uh, uh, and lots of problems uh, in others about me. So it was like I could please other people or I could please myself. And that was the, uh, that was sort of the, the grim binary that I faced. But I, w I was able to find a third alternative where, you know, you don't work uh, on that simple binary, but rather you say, okay, well, there's some issues, there's some life things, I need to work on that. I need to work on keep me away from alcohol and then work on what's the result and then work at trying, trying to find uh, a, a joyful, happy life without alcohol and to find that there were, uh, that I wasn't alone in that was, was crucial. The way that you're saying it makes it sound very straightforward, but I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, mechanics in order to make that happen. And I want to dive into those very soon. But first, let's play a song by The Doors, Steve. What have you picked? Across my time at, at university, I was uh, I was I was prone to uh, uh, at the drop of a hat uh, break out in Jim Morrison poetry or, uh, uh, or or sing one of his songs or whatever, and uh, and I don't know whether I was uh, I was broken at the time. I was hoping that I was trying to break on through, and so here's "Break On Through" by The Doors.
break on through to the other side. It was The Doors on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. That song was selected by Dr. Stephen Jurd, my guest today on the show. My name is Mia Hull. It's a pleasure to have your company. And we've been talking about the story of your life, Steve, which is very much based around research and treating people with addiction. That's kind of the forefront of the work you do. And I want to spend a little bit of time now kind of just talking about the nuts and bolts of addiction. I feel like it's a disease that a lot of us don't understand. So first, what makes something an addiction? How do you define that term? It's a bit uh, difficult. One, one of the uh, the authors that uh, uh, that I've followed over many years, uh, he said uh, of deciding when it when it starts and when it stops, uh, he, he, he came up with a beautiful metaphor. He said, all blacks and whites are grey on high enough magnification. So if you spend a lot of time looking at the dividing line between what is addiction and what isn't addiction, well, then you can see, oh, it all blurs into one another. But if you go into the clinic, then it can be quite literally addiction you can photograph. Mm. That is, and the, and the difference between uh, the life of that person and the life of the person who's very similar otherwise is just chalk and cheese. And so, uh, and so that makes the, the, the diagnostic dilemma uh, not diagnostic at all. Another, another way of saying it, uh, another author said, uh, summarised the World Health Organisation definition of alcoholism as drinking, having problems and drinking anyway. Mm. And so you can see how somebody could drink and have problems. But then if you drink anyway, despite the problems, or you drink to try to solve those problems or to keep them out of your mind, then you've got a nasty little vicious circle. And so, and so that I, I think for, for lay people, I, I think that that's a good enough uh, definition. Uh, you know, so you can talk about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders yeah. of the uh, American Psychiatric Association and so on. But but I think for all drugs, using, having problems and using anyway uh, is, uh, is, is probably a, a pretty fair definition. Now, that's reflected at a neurobiological level by the distortion of the reward pathway uh the reward pathway in the brain is that deep uh old in evolution that is it comes all the way back from uh, lizards uh, but it's deep in our brain so that so it's in a lizard brain so that in, in the human brain it's covered by the mammalian brain and the primate brain and then the human brain going over and over the top <clears throat> of that and so so that primitive decision-making system is altered by drugs drugs make that decision-making system fire off and so artificially and so the artificial firing off of that part of the brain tells the rest of the brain oh i like this Mm. so drugs as we understand them are chemicals which trick the brain into thinking that you like them okay as distinct from you know what what's that part of the brain for that part of the brain supposed to fire off when we see our favored mate 
when we eat a good meal, when when we feel the glorious warmth of the sun on our shoulders, or or we smell a flower, or we we see people that we love, uh, and so that's that's what functions, and that's that's why relatives are are often so distressed by addiction in somebody because they really do change the way they relate to the relatives. Mm. And that comes down to the fact that in this old lizard part of the brain, the value of substance use gets pushed higher than the value of relationships. Mm. And and of course, that's going to have uh, awful consequences uh, to people's relationships and therefore to their lives. This is a good, uh, this is a good program uh, to use my top 40 analogy, you know, being a baby boomer, yeah. I talk about the top 40 yeah. uh, back in the day. And, and so, so it's like we've all got behaviours that we enjoy and that we engage with and that are fun. And if really pressed, we could rank order them. How important is it to watch the cricket versus to read the paper versus to eat lunch at a particular time versus reading a book, listening to music, et cetera, et cetera. You could array those in an order. And that at least part of the influence into how we make that order is how well fired off our reward pathways. If you artificially induce lots of firing off in that reward pathway, well, then our brain comes to think that the substance using behavior is more important than the cricket, than hugging a loved one, than seeing your children, uh, than keeping your, uh, uh, your records up to date, etc. And so what happens is that the substance becomes uh, of prime importance in people's lives. That's really interesting. It's, um, I guess I wasn't expecting such a nuanced definition. I think I, I probably would have expected quantities of alcohol to come up more. And by way of being kind of nuanced, are there different approaches to alcoholism in the medical field? Oh, yes. No, not everybody talks like Dr. Jerd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and like I said, there's a, there's a, a diagnostic and statistical manual. Yeah. And um, and and uh, and it makes no reference to um, uh, to neurobiology. It only talks about uh, the symptoms. Mm. And and broadly, in simplistic terms, the more symptoms you have, the more serious your addiction. So if you lose your job because of your addiction, if you lose your relationship because of your addiction, you lose your health because of your addiction, and come into trouble with the law. Um, and so on and so forth, and you come into trouble with it or a little bit or a lot. So a, a lot of people un- understand it in a much more quantitative way, yes. And with respect to alcohol, it's probably important on this show uh, today to to remind people that the National Health and Medical Research Council has now clearly announced that there is no amount of alcohol to drink that is good for you. Previously, there was an argument that one or two drinks a day might be helpful to you. Uh, that, that idea has now been expunged from the medical literature. So, you know, a, a small amount of alcohol, say 10 drinks a week, no more than four on any day, is not bad for you. Uh, but any more than that, and 
small amounts of harm are caused. And lots of people drink more than that and cause small amounts of harm in their life. And they probably don't need to go and see an addiction psychiatrist or or go into um, uh, the recovery facility that, that uh, we've developed uh, or whatever. They, that, and they just need to talk to their loved ones, to see their doctor, to reconsider their behaviour. But once you've really altered that uh, preference-making system inside your brain, then you're in trouble. Walk me through your approach and, and the way you treat people. So, so the crucial thing, uh, so what we've got going at the Sydney Retreat is self-diagnosis. So people, they don't have to throw the runes or to, uh, or to get their head read or to, um, uh, or to consult textbooks to know that they've got a problem. They just have to admit that they do. To, to step back and look at their behaviour and go, would I be happy if somebody in my life behaved like that? Would I recommend to somebody I, I love to drink as much as I drink, to take drugs the way I do? Would I recommend that to somebody else? No, of course I wouldn't. And so, so you get people to reconsider uh, their lives to step back from it to make their own diagnosis now if they do have an addiction well then it's serious the main seriousness is the prognosis as in as in my father my father fell victim to a belief which nearly every person has when they have a long period of abstinence they think that their period of abstinence qualifies them to drink normally subsequently but sadly addiction that once you have a diagnosis of addiction it confers a lifelong risk of relapse and once you've got the serious form you need to stop altogether forever if you're going to live a decent life now that doesn't seem to make any sense why don't you just turn them down turn it down because it's like riding a bike you go you, you learn to ride a bike when you well when you're a kid you hop back on the bike, you do it the same way, it's easy. You've learned how to drink in a particular way and that, that particular way has been multiply reinforced over and over and over and over again mm. at the level of the reward pathway. So yeah. for people to be safe, they need to stop altogether once they've got an addiction. So there's no other way that you what, can learn to ride a bike? Well, there are exceptions, but they're pretty <laughs> few. Yeah. They're pretty few. They're yeah. pretty few. And and we as doctors, we, we, we treat the centre of the normal curve, not the exceptions. Mm. If people can go away and prove me wrong and say, ha ha, I'm going to control my drinking and prove him, prove him wrong, great. Yeah. Really happy with that. I'm happy, happy for you that you're controlling your drinking and you're doing well. But that you're, that that's the 5%. That's the five percent. The you know the the other ninety five percent are pretty much sober, drunk, or dead, mm. and so they're the the stark alternatives that the majority of that normal curve faces. And so it's a uh, so it's a very serious condition, and uh, uh, and once and and so we help people to come to terms with that. Uh, to make that self-diagnosis, to, to lead people there, 
to say, well, was that a sensible, normal choice to make? No, it was a weird, unreasonable choice that I made over and over and over and over and over again. Well, maybe I better make another radical choice. And, uh, and you know, do things like, I don't know, go to the meeting, get a sponsor, do the steps. That's what, uh, uh, that's what the, the sort of thing that I recommend to, uh, uh, to people who come within shouting distance of me. Yeah. And what are the steps? Okay. So I talked about the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the first step is, is just admitting you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the second step is uh, seeking help from outside yourself. Uh, the third step is accepting that help. Uh, steps four to nine are the inventory steps in which you take an inventory of your life. You share that with somebody else to clarify it. You identify your worst faults and try to uh, expunge them from your life. And then you uh, make amends to people. And the last three steps are the maintenance steps, um, continuing to, to take inventory, uh, expanding your spiritual life and helping others. There are a couple of ways that you've implemented these steps in programs, not just in Australia, but in the US as well. And in a couple of minutes, I do want to touch on those. But we're going to play a song by Led Zeppelin first, Steve. Tell me about this one. What does it mean to you? So probably Led Zeppelin's last great album uh, was uh, Houses of the Holy, uh, double album. And uh, and it's got this... Um, this magnificent track, Kashmir, which goes to, it's transcendent for mine. It's, it's beautiful music and, uh, and is about rising above your problem. It's Led Zeppelin on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Kashmir. I'm Mia Hull, joined by Steve Judd. Was Led Zeppelin on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I am joined by Dr. Stephen Jurd, the chooser of that song, who just before playing it was talking about his 12-step recovery program brought to Australia from the US. And if we had a little bit more time today, I'd want to spend time rolling through your CV, Dr. Stephen, and talk about the Phoenix Unit and the Sydney Retreat and all of the ways that you've addressed alcoholism in Australia. It's a very big issue. Unfortunately, we don't have more than an hour today, and I just want to talk about the work you've done with addicted doctors, because that's maybe more of a nuanced issue that I didn't really know about until we started to research this episode. Can you maybe explain to me first what that problem is? Well, doctors are human, aren't they? Mm. Uh, and so there's there's absolutely no reason to expect that the, uh, that the same number of doctors as in the general community uh, wouldn't have... Uh, um, alcohol dependence and so that is the case so uh you know at any one time something like three to five percent of uh doctors have got a very serious drinking problem and and across a career uh you double that so it's you know six to ten percent of doctors will at some time across their career 
uh, develop a serious drug drink or drink problem. Uh, with regard to drugs, uh, doctors are uniquely placed in that we're able to prescribe all manner of drugs. And some doctors, in particular anaesthetists, uh, are exposed to uh, a, a veritable sea of, uh, of chemicals that, that, that change your, your mood. And they see the look on people's faces as they inject them. And they see how they can calm people down and so on. And so there's a, so, it's a, a, so on the one hand, we're human. On the other hand, there's an occupational hazard, particularly for anaesthetists, uh, perhaps uh, to a degree for surgeons, uh, certainly for emergency doctors, intensive care doctors who are around these chemicals a lot. And so, sometimes GPs too, uh, who, uh, who are exposed to getting a lot of these uh, these drugs, and uh, and so they can fall into the habit themselves. Now, um, when uh, so I was early, relatively early in my career, there weren't a lot of uh, addiction doctors around, and, uh, and when they were looking for, and and I had a. Uh, a good position at a prominent hospital and so people started to say well could you treat a doctor mm. and so i i slowly uh felt my way through it and came to uh came to to learn that uh, that doctors had much the same problems with addiction as other people uh but that um but they've got extra excuses mm. and they've got extra defenses and so it's, you know, the, you know, most addicts and alcoholics are, are very easily able to say, oh, it's different for me. So that, so that for doctors, uh, they can easily, much more easily say, well, I can't go to that any meeting near my home because I'll find my patients there mm. and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so, and so there are, so it's, it's more of the same. There's some subtleties, but uh, there's, there's, there's lots of similarities and it's been a, yeah, uh, a great um, uh, joy in my life to to try to uh, assist colleagues. You, yeah, you're talking about colleagues being identified as having a problem, but you said before the first step of your 12-step program is to identify the problem yourself. So when you are treating doctors with addictions, how does that fit into your program? Yes, that that's that's sometimes a a, a battle um, in that um, some. Uh, some doctors are caught doing outrageous and pathological things, but quite early in the course of their addiction. You know, after, you know, the first 10 or 20 times that they've used a drug and they and they might find it very hard to self-diagnose. And so uh, and so they need that external control that comes uh, from the New South Wales Medical Council. And so because they've got that external control, then you've got longer to work with them to say, well, you know, why did this all happen? And do you really need to have a lifelong recovery approach? And, and, and some of them don't sign off on that. They say, no, I just want to get the council off my back. I'll get the council off my back and I'll be fine. And some of them relapse and I'm sure others don't, mm. but, uh, uh, but yes, uh, yeah, getting people to the point where they need a lifelong recovery pro approach, that's quite difficult. Yeah, amazing work. And I wish we had more time to run over sure. 
the achievements that you've had in your life, I'll pop some bios up on the programs page on fbradio.com. Oh, so if anyone does <laughs> want to read about yeah, the amazing I, work of Dr. Stephen Judd, that's where you can find it. Steve, what does the future hold for you? What does the future hold for me? Well, I've, I've retired from active practice, but I've got a retirement project and it's called the Sydney Retreat. Uh, and it's in Stanmore, not all that far from FBI Radio. And, uh, and there we hope to introduce people to the ways of recovery and to, and to learn how to be not only sober, but happy. And, uh, and many of my patients have achieved that over the years. And I'm sure many more will through the Sydney Retreat. Thank you so much for jumping on the show today. It's, it's really been quite touching hearing the way that you talk about addiction. Is there anything else you'd like to say before you go? Do you want me to tell the dolphin story? <laughs> I don't think it fits organically into the, what we have. You've chosen a song by The Divinals to wrap things up with Steve. Tell me about this one. So great Aussie kick-ass rock and roll band, uh, the, the Divinals. Uh, the bass player uh, was uh, was a drug and alcohol counsellor at uh, at Herbert Street Clinic, and and he's a friend, uh, and he's a good man, Rick Grossman, and uh, and this, you know, pleasure and pain, I've dealt with a lot of that across my life. This is the Divinals. The song is called Pleasure and Pain, picked by my guest on Out of the Box today, addiction psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Jurd. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can listen back on the programs page on fbiradio.com and on the programs page too, I'll put links to all of the things that Stephen and I have spoken about, as well as some extra resources in case the topics that we discussed today brought anything to the surface for you. You can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, huge shout out to producer Tash for doing all of the research for this episode and stick around. Lunch up next. FBI. Thank you.